Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. As police officers, our nature is often one of the protection of others, including, importantly, our own families. But imagine walking through a parkland one evening with your wife and family dog to suddenly have a red laser light shone on your chest, your family pet and then your wife, all from significant distance, and all because you were standing up for what you believed was right. Who it was, we will never know. But what we do know is that it was a message. It's time you left Australia. This incident has stayed with and troubled Ken ever since, and he now feels a great deal of responsibility for placing his wife and family in this position of great vulnerability and potentially life-threatening danger. All this and more on my exclusive chat with Sir Ken Jones, QPM. Um, saw an opportunity prior to taking up the deputy commissioner's position as the commissioner for police Victoria and um, if I recall rightly from previous conversations you came second for that position and, were, and was asked to put in for the deputy commissioner's position of which you accepted and took up that post in 2009 again you looked for challenges overseas almost um reminiscence of your hong kong deployment but obviously this one was taking on more of a significant 
uh, challenge. You know, Victoria Police has a staff strength of 16,000. Australia is a very large country. Victoria is quite a very large state. Its capital is Melbourne. Tell us about that move and what prompted that and obviously conversations with family. Yeah, I mean, once I was coming to the end of my term in ACPO. It's a fixed three-year term then, President and Chief of ACPO. So I wanted another role. I was actively looking at two other police forces. I was on the shortlist for one of them um, to the point where I'd had a preliminary interview and I was pretty confident it was for me. Uh, and then the, uh, I was approached by a headhunters agency in, in, in Melbourne saying, could they advertise to chief officers in the UK for um, if they wanted to be interested in becoming the chief commissioner of Victoria Police? And of course, it was pretty standard for us in, in the chief officers group, then in ACPO, to say, yes, of course, we'll advertise that for you. But the minute it landed on the on our website, I thought, why aren't I thinking about this? You know, crazy, crazy, really crazy idea. Probably one of the best or worst ideas I've ever had. Here I am. I've got a bird in the hand. I'd almost been appointed to a force. And I've, I did have some qualms about that in down in, in the next few days. Uh, and I've got another force also. And I'm pretty confident. I, I would have had one or the other. So I discussed it with my wife. Um, we went into it for a few days, researched and realized basically, <clears throat> excuse me, this was going to be an emigration. This isn't just a contract or appointment. You would be, we would be emigrating. And I, that made it even more appealing to me. I thought, what an amazing thing to be, you know, to, to, to get an Aussie passport, to live on the other side of the world, um, our daughter was then at university. She was interested in coming along with us, and she did, in fact, join us for a while. So, cut a long story short, I thought, why not? I'm going to apply for it. Some some colleagues applied as well, and um, I had to withdraw from one of the other competitions, and they wished me well, bless them. And I went out to Melbourne a couple of times to see the lay of the land, and I was hugely impressed with the. Uh, policing model that they had in Victoria and still have. I understand you. It's a watch house model. I think it's the same or it looks the same in many in, in the other states of Australia. But here I met local police leadership. Here I met locally accountable leadership, significant teams delivering a holistic policing model. And I thought this, this is meat and drink to me. I love it. And above that level, we had strategic operations against crime, buy keys, drugs, which you'd expect across the state and certainly across Australia. So I thought I'd love to be uh, leading an organisation like this. So I thought I'm, I'm going to pitch up for it. So I did. And as you say, I was unsuccessful. And frankly, the guy who was successful, you know, he was the better fit. It would have been a huge risk to give me a, a run at that coming from another country. Um, whereas they had a, an officer of local, he, he He's achieved quite a lot in terms of uh, organised crime and other issues. So I I, I wrote a, a nice letter. I received a nice letter from the then Premier. And that was that. And um, within a few weeks, I had a call um, thinking, would I, be, would I consider applying for the deputy's position? And after about an hour and talked talk to Kay, yeah, OK, why not? Why not? So um, I did. I was went out again to Australia. I uh, was offered the job and I was appointed. And uh, as you know, <laughs> a quite significant turbulent history followed. Can you tell us about your first impressions of Australia 
Victoria as a state and the dynamics and the complexities of the police department that you came in as the rank of deputy commissioner of? I'll, I'll, first of all, I'll say Australia. What an incredibly welcoming culture. What an amazing um, city Melbourne was and also the towns, cities around Victoria and some of the smaller, even the smaller settlements than that. So my, my impression of Australian culture was so warm and embracing. And I thought, this is a place I can live. And I loved it. Um, same, same goes for Kay. Um, so we set up home in Melbourne. We had a cup. We rented a couple of places, and and we just we still talk about it today. You know, if you can, if you could have separated that out from what happened in terms of policing, so no doubt whatsoever, no reservations about Australia and its culture, and some of the friends I made that we made then are still friends today. You know, they they've endured and survived longer than perhaps anyone would have expected. Um, just just amazing. Um, turning to the police, I recognised so many similarities in terms of the policing model I'd been used to in the UK. Legislation was very, very similar. Operating practices and procedure were similar, but the culture was obviously slightly different. I'd already mentioned, I think I've already mentioned that uh, how attracted I was to this localism. But they didn't quite, I don't think the Aussies see it for the strength that it is, but I saw it as a hugely important I wouldn't want to be involved, for example, in some kind of remote brigaded up police operation, no matter where it was. But this this was absolutely right at my street. I very quickly realized that obviously this not everyone thought this was such a fantastic idea within Victoria Police. Oh, who can blame them? Here's a guy who's coming from the middle of nowhere, taking one of our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I bring into play then my view of, well, I've got to play myself in here. I certainly haven't got all the answers. And I have to say, Oliver, I sent so many policies and practices back to London from Victoria. Some of the things they were doing were just fantastic. So you could see that by blending the good from all countries, you, might, you ought to be able to come up with the most effective policing model available. Um, so it, it, was, it was fundamentally really good to see so many innovative, progressive things happening in such a large organisation. But there were other things I felt I could offer something. Uh, obviously, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be appointed deputy otherwise. So it, it, it was kind of, but nothing was, nothing was dark and threatening, as it were. It was just differences that I felt that I could, get, I could get my head around. Let's talk about the senior leadership within Victoria Police when you arrived. Um, the commissioner of the police at the time was um, Simon Overland. Um, I suppose he was your direct boss. And then you would have had a team of assistant commissioners underneath you who you were, who were accountable to yourself in terms of the different regions that they were looking after. How did you find the culture at the senior management level? I think they, I'd make a comment more broadly about the culture. They've got issues uh, every force has with corruption and poor behaviour. One of the things that struck me, because I had responsibility for ethical standards, so I used to see, I actually conducted some hearings, I used to see the files that were coming through. I, I realised very quickly that without pointing the finger at any individual right here and now, there was a problem with the leadership culture, not with individuals, it, it ran right across the force at times. There was a very, very strong culture of loyalty to your boss, um, loyalty to the hierarchy, and not to the law and doing the right thing. And that is a real problem. 
in any in any organisation, but particularly in law enforcement, because ultimately we police on behalf of the community, not on behalf of your sergeant or your inspector, or even indeed your deputy chief. And if you're not, if you haven't got the right stars to steer you by, which which I've always held to, and I mentioned this, you know, right back in my career in the United Kingdom, it was actually loyalty to the law, loyalty to the law, and doing the right thing. That was your fundamental. Um, if that wasn't the star that steered you, you're going to get into some sort of problem at some point because the conflicts between loyalty to hierarchy and loyalty to the law are daily. And if you go the wrong way, you're quickly compromised. You didn't do the right thing. You didn't follow the law in that instant. And you now beholden to, or your people are beholden to you within the structure because they're loyal to you or you were loyal to them. And it was alien to me. It was completely alien to me. <coughs> and... I, I saw the echoes of it, <coughs> excuse me, not just within the service, within connected parts of the service, sort of correction department, Department of Justice, where people had done, um, I don't know, the wrong, favour is the wrong word, but they'd certainly, they felt they were doing the right thing to turn a blind eye to a, an incident or an event way back in the past. And you could see it had compromised relationships and um, in, in the obvious way. And it, it begins at some point to infect everything that's happening. Clearly, some people would argue, well, yeah, what's wrong with loyalty to, you know, Sergeant Smith, he or she absolutely follows the letter of the law as an ethical, moral, decent person. Of course, those sorts of people do command loyalty, but you've got to be able to sift out the Sergeant Smith from the Sergeant Evanses who aren't ethical, moral, and decent, and not to have this instinctive loyalty to hierarchy. And I found that's what it was. And it was it was made clear to me that that's you know that that was expected. You know, are you going to be loyal? And it was more like you know you'd see you'd see in a, in, in a in a group which whose intentions were not honourable, as it were. You know that um, this is just just isn't right. And the other thing I found was that that kind of uh, culture generates a form of corruption, which isn't about money. Now, I'd seen corruption in Hong Kong and elsewhere that was all driven by greed and acquisitive um, um, tendencies. This was about avoiding accountability for some kind of stuff up, something that's gone wrong. So the vast, the most of it was around that. So. It isn't, it isn't something the public recognise too much, but it's something that harms them greatly. If you imagine in medicine, the obvious analogy is that, you know, I, I work alongside a heart surgeon. He, he or she isn't very good, botches operations. I don't know anything about it, you know, because I'm loyal. You know, it's that kind of, it's that obvious, but in policing, it's not that obvious. So I saw a lot of that as well. And you could then find in looking at historical things across the force and I had access to everything like files, meetings, um, you could see that, that that indeed had happened. And here I am, an outsider pitched into it, and I thought, what am I supposed to do? You know, you, you, do you turn away, um, turn a blind eye? That isn't my way. Do you leave, walk away from it? Well, I'd signed a contract. I wasn't going to do that either. So what it is, I decided to try and do something about it. What's your first thoughts, or what were your thought, first thoughts and early impressions on some of the incompetencies around and the corruption shown in Operation Diana? Well, um, I saw that there was 
not I wouldn't single out Diana or any of those operations. I'll just I'll just make a general point, if you don't mind, Oliver, is that there's a tendency that it, it, it the end justifies the means. And you could see some of that in all those operations. And this is where I said to you before, we have a hierarchy to we have a loyalty to hierarchy, it begins to influence decision making um, in everyday ways as well as when there's something important happening. And you could see that by backtracking through various decisions that have been made. Well, why did we do that? Why, why didn't we do this? Why? And you could see why, because to actually do things in the right way, to actually follow procedure, to do things in a lawful way, would have exposed an individual to some censure or worse. Uh, a, a serving officer and it's that business of being loyal to both not to doing the right thing so it, it it kind of cut across quite a few operations i don't want to any listeners to run away with the idea this is absolutely everybody it wasn't the vast majority and it sounds a bit of a cliche but the vast majority of the senior people uh, be they sworn or unsworn uh, and the people who are working out in the in in parts of victoria police and their support staff, which is the right sort of people, amazing people, people I'd walk through fire for. But there were a number of key individuals in senior positions that I couldn't apply that statement to. You know, I wouldn't walk through anything for them. Let's just touch on some of the, the broader challenges for Victoria Police in terms of managing and policing organised crime. Um We'll just touch on Carl Williams. He was a significant underworld figure in Victoria for a long, long time. First tonight, the dramatic early morning police raids that foiled another gangland execution. It's been hailed as a victory for Purana Task Force Police, assigned to stamp out Melbourne's violent underworld war. Suspect after suspect arrived at the Purana Task Force's St Kilda Road headquarters in unmarked cars, all under the watchful eye of the Chief Commissioner. Among them, underworld figure Carl Williams and his teenage son. Uh, he was murdered mm. whilst incarcerated a number of years ago. There's been many documentaries, TV shows made about this, you know, often wrongly glamorised lifestyle in organised crime and drug dealing and, and, and illegal firearms and you name it, it was covered. Can you, for the, our listeners that aren't aware of who Carl Williams was, could you just give us a bit of background on who he was, the issues that were faced and kind of your involvement in the investigation into his murder in prison and, and your oversight over the top of it? Yeah, well, Carl Williams was um, a key figure in the manufacturing and supply of illegal drugs across Victoria, uh, particularly in Melbourne. And uh, any, anyone who's involved in, in that kind of operation at that level is a target for other people who want to do exactly the same thing, as indeed were people who were doing the same thing before he grew his operation and knocked, and knocked them off their perch, as it were. So he was a very, very important figure across Melbourne in particular, but Victoria at that time. Uh, and he, he had become I would say the most prominent figure in that business at the time. Before I arrived in Victoria, he'd in fact been arrested, been charged with homicides and was actually cooperating actively then uh, with, the, with the police and prosecution authorities in bringing to justice a number of other people. And um, so, as I say, very, a very important figure and a very important player. Uh, he was... I took over a number of operations relating to Carl Williams. At the time, he was detained at uh, Barwon Prison in Victoria, um, and he was being debriefed by specialist officers 
And he was providing an opportunity, probably the only opportunity, to resolve a number of homicides, unsolved homicides from the years before. They've been, you're looking at in the dozens, 30 plus. So he was a very, very important figure. And I got a phone call uh, one morning. I was out, out on patrol in Melbourne. Uh, there, in fact, he'd been bashed to death within his secure unit by another prisoner up at Balmain Prison. So that then initiated, uh, obviously, uh, a huge intensive investigation. But it was, in fact, a massive missed opportunity for the state in terms of getting justice for a lot of people. Um, uh, it was a huge setback. I was of the view that um, there were a number of theories to explain how this had occurred. And one of them was that this indeed was, in fact, uh, a contract murder. He'd been murdered by another inmate, to order, as it were. And uh, we investigated a number of those theories around that time. But I was of the view that that was a very, very uh, critical one to be investigated. He was the baby-faced drug lord embroiled in a decade of tit-for-tat killings and the murder of gangland boss Carl Williams provided a sensational climax to Melbourne's underworld wars. Given the warnings that the Department of Justice were given about the risk to Williams' welfare, that they didn't intervene and didn't protect him is absolutely breathtaking. The murder trial of Melbourne underworld figure Carl Williams has heard allegations that he organised a hitman on behalf of a corrupt cop. How does somebody become the victim of a contract killing whilst they're being held in a, in a, um, in well, a, in a facility well, to which they're being housed as a prisoner? Well, let's put it on the face of it. You've got three people in a secure unit. Nobody else was there. They are filmed, recorded supervised more or less 24 7 and certainly in the hours of waking there are always people observing them because these are a high risk b high value prisoners um you know and and, and it's just unthinkable to think that within this environment there is something happens so this uh, a, a time where the staff are all absent for 20 30 minutes a time when um, an exercise bicycle, um, somebody dismantles it, a pris another prisoner, Matthew Johnson, who's now in, serving in prison for murdering Carl Williams, pulls the seat stem out of this uh, bicycle and uh, goes up behind Carl Williams and uh, basically caves his skull in and kills him. So, you, And then you're looking at the body of Carl Williams has been dragged around this unit, pulled into his cell, minutes are ticking by, before the alarms raised, and in, in the end, one of the three inmates, has to, one of the two surviving inmates, as it were, has to pick up the phone and report this. So that, on the face of it, is more than suspicious, in my humble opinion. And I took the view, as I say, that this could have been, and in my opinion, was a facilitated opportunity for someone to kill Carl Williams. So, but we looked at all the other opportunities as well. All the other theories were being developed at the same time. So this is how it happens. And you say, well, how on earth could that happen? So you look, you look to other jurisdictions, you look to other corrections departments to how policies and procedures are operated around prisoners of this calibre. And then you, you see, well, how on earth is it that this person was left unguarded, left unwatched, unattended? How is it that exercise equipment, which to my certain knowledge in most countries is put beyond, uh, you can't dismantle it because people will turn it into a weapon and use it against prison officers. Um, in most prisons, these things are welded up. How is it that this was left so that someone could actually dismantle it, 
with a with a flick of a wrist and uh, suddenly becomes a, a lethal weapon in his hands. So that was the focus because Carl Williams, as I said to you, was assisting um, the law enforcement and that threatened an awful lot of people and the people who would want to see him dead. So that was the focus of, that was one of the uh, primary focus areas for the investigation, which I then set up, Operation Driver. I think it's still running. For the first time, the alleged links between slain underworld figure Carl Williams and former drug squad detective Paul Dale can be revealed. Victoria's ombudsman has, in his report, condemned Corrections Victoria, saying it failed in its statutory duty to ensure Mr Williams' safety. Is it fair for one to hypothesise that somebody within the corrections facility, i.e. an employed public servant operating within that correctional facility, has had to aid in isolating Mr Williams to allow that offence to occur. It seems in, in such facilities where they are monitored so closely in terms of their movements, what they're doing, to be left alone for such a long period of time spells out that people just left the area intentionally. Well... What you have to ask yourself, Oliver, is that it's either it's either mass incompetence or it's corruption and conspiracy, and it's one or the other. So this this was this was the focus. So the incompetence route, for me, we quickly were able to rule out. You know, we we couldn't find any other periods when all these coincidences happened when there were people absent, cameras weren't being monitored. You know, so you looked at, well, how has this happened at this particular point in time? And how was it this weapon facilitated, which it was? You know, it just it just didn't hang together. And clearly pressing very hard on these um, areas didn't endear me to quite a few people around Victoria in government and other agencies and other connected agencies, particularly corrections, Department of Justice. This was one of the first times I think when I when I'd realized that primacy of police as accepted in the United Kingdom, you know, wasn't the same in Australia. Although they say it's the same, it actually isn't. You're regarded there as um, partially biddable, let's face it. You know, you're part of the executive. And I never could accept that because I'd always had this principle of the law comes first. Everyone is equal before the law. My ultimate loyalty, whether I'm a chief constable or constable or whatever, is to the law. So, I was driving very hard and I had to sort of confront some very senior people across governments to get out of the way. You're, you're involved in discussions and behaviour, which in where I've come from would, would cause you some significant trouble. You're almost obstructing justice. But they were quite shocked for me to push away at them and said, this, this isn't right. You are asking the wrong questions to the point where employees of certain agencies don't, oh, you don't have to talk to the police. Well, of course, they've got a common law duty to assist the police in any way, shape or form, particularly in a homicide inquiry. So I was then making some pretty difficult um, enemies at the top of certain organisations. And it was the beginning of my end, as it were, as we all know. So that, that sort of incident really did push into sharp relief um, differences between the United Kingdom and, and, and Australia, particularly Victoria. And what opens this up and makes this issue around Carl Williams's murder even more complicated is then the um, the Nic uh, Nicola Gobbo uh, issue in terms of human sources. 
Now, yes. for our for again our listeners outside of Australia who won't be familiar with uh, Miss Gobbo, was a practicing solicitor turned police informant. Good evening. The identity of Lawyer X, who snitched on high-profile gangland clients, can finally be revealed as former defence barrister Nicola Gobbo. Police rumoured to have spent millions in legal fees, trying and failing to keep her identity a secret. Um, could you tell us a little bit about? what was to be a bit of a touchstone moment in, in in your disbelief as to how on earth we've managed to register a solicitor as an informant who was obviously providing information against several underworld figures in Melbourne, which caused obviously the... Um, that was the trigger for the Royal Commission into Human Sources in Victoria, to which you have provided a very lengthy statement, which is now publicly available... Could you tell us about Miss Gobbo and, and what your senses of around the legitimacy of the information she was providing and the, and the significant challenges that that provided Victoria Police? Yes, um, cut a long story short, as a consequence of the Williams murder and the investigation began to turn up um, very unusual things around Nicola Gobbo, which clients she'd been involved in and which... <clears throat> trial she'd been involved in, excuse me, but also I had no idea at that point she was actually um, a source and been provided information to a number of senior people in Victoria Police. None of them, none of them had ever told me that this was happening. And, um, and as, as I got more and more into the, into the heart of this issue, this matter I told you about earlier, where loyalty to law and doing the right thing is second to loyalty to hierarchy, you know, began to be writ large because here was something which clearly beyond unethical registering uh, this barrister as a source and and actually turning a blind eye to the fact that she was then representing clients in criminal trials and certain officers knew what the defense was what the issues were because they were they were being told these these issues, which were, they were then retailing to uh, other other officers. Tony Mockbell is a step closer to being freed after a major legal victory in the fallout over the Lawyer X scandal. The drug king's conviction for importing cocaine has been quashed. Throwing out a conviction for importing three kilograms of cocaine from Mexico. A crime for which he spent the past 12 years behind bars, all thanks to his former lawyer, Nicola Gobbo. I'm not surprised. It's the correct result. Where you have a situation where somebody, a lawyer, interferes with an accused case and they get convicted, I'm not surprised. Arguably, some of those officers have committed very, very serious crimes. You had judges who weren't told about that this was happening, and certainly the DPP's office. So you could see where loyalty to the law and doing the right thing wouldn't have allowed this to happen, whereas loyalty to hierarchy and boss would and did. And it was so deeply ingrained, it was quite shocking to me. It was industrial, frankly. The way that this, this behaviour had corrupted and uh, undermined the criminal justice process was, was just shocking. So you could also see um, and hypothesise, but we never got the chance to interview Nicola Gobbo and put these issues to her, that she had been retailing information, if, if you will, from, from her clients, organized some of them were on no organized crime groups of the day um backwards and forwards to officers so she was actually playing both sides 
Uh, and it was a very, very dangerous game and serious things were happened in consequence. So how deep and how, how, how far did this go? And, and I was possibly the worst possible person from a number of people's perspective to be at the heart of this investigation and clearly benefit of hindsight. You know, that was the beginning of my end, not just the Williams homicide, but my uncovering of quite a number of these issues and also making it perfectly clear to people, this is unacceptable. I'm absolutely dismayed that this happened. And I was beginning to push for um, a root and branch review of all the cases that she'd been involved in, a cross-reference of all her clients and all the judges and magistrates, and to see just how deep the damage was. And as we know, in latter years, people have, there have been appeals uh, where people have been uh, released from prison where they've been incarcerated for, for homicides. You know, and the High Court of Australia is scathing in indictment, sorry, in scathing judgment on this whole episode involving Nicola Gobble and senior people in the Victoria Police was, it's just eye-watering to read. That came out a few years after I was uh, ousted, as it were. But I was, I made it clear I wasn't going to back off. This was what I was, put my hand up and swore to, to do. And uh, I was going to do my best to uh, get to the bottom of it and sort it out. Now, obviously, um, senior colleagues may or may not have been involved and implicated in all this, but it was hard to see how anyone who'd been involved in some of the departments and some of the investigations that I that I would taken responsibility for couldn't have known about it. So I had to look for some means of contesting this in a way which didn't allow all the evidence to be destroyed, which would either exonerate or implicate people. At, the, at that time, I didn't know which it was. So I went then to a whistleblower agency and became, you know, and I became a whistleblower. One of the um, greatest challenges in any complex investigation is the registering of human sources, their careful management by a source handler, uh, the authorization for that person to become a source to ensure there are no conflicts of interest. How on earth was Gobbo allowed to become a human source? Was she officially registered or is it something that was siloed away from any sort of senior management so they were unaware of where the information were coming from? Was uh, And was organised crime so out of control in Victoria that, that, that officers felt so under pressure that they needed to take these measures in order to be successful? Well, your last point first, there's no doubt that that was part of the rationale and justification uh, and you could see that being gained on a, in a meeting room. Oh, let's talk that through. That sounds incredibly appealing. And then you could also say within five minutes, but here are the downsides. We're not going to touch that with a barge pole. But yes, there were some people that were motivated with all, with all the right ideals, but they didn't think it through. So yes, we're going to take information from this barrister about her client, and then we're going to use that information. We're not going to tell the DPP we're not going to tell the judge. The jury are going to be duped and we're going to actually come up uh, to court during discovery sessions on oath and not tell the truth. It was just a non-starter. Uh, but you could see that on the face of it, you know, for about five minutes, yeah, this might work, but no, it wasn't going to work. So at that level, at the tactical level, yes, they were under immense pressure and stress. At the senior level, I think there's less, ex I can't find any rationale or justification for even entertaining it you know, as an idea. So yes, she was registered, but in a way, every force, every organization, security agency, you know, will have a top grade of informant, as it were, or agent. And there will be 
particular protections around that individual and he or she won't be in the general index cards for registered informers. So she had a form of registration, certainly, um, but it was controlled very, very tightly by a handful of people. Uh, not, not one of them saw fit, even though I was given responsibility and accountability for the whole organised crime um, thing in Victoria, nobody actually told me about it. I had to find out in this, in this way as a consequence of William's murder. But you could see why they didn't tell me about it, Oliver, because I'd made it clear uh, from the off what my values and standards were. And um, if they went through a, a, well, can we tell him about this? Of course we can't, because he's going to work out very quickly that courts have been deceived, judges haven't been told the truth, discoveries being faulty, people may have perjured themselves. So it was a real dilemma for them, really. I sometimes scratch my head and wonder, well, why on earth did they ever offer me the job? But they did. So I then became very, very isolated. And um, it was a difficult, difficult time for me. But I felt and feel I was doing the right thing. This wasn't what had happened in the courts in Victoria to the community of Victoria was wrong, 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 wrong. And uh, I couldn't have any, you know, truck with it. And if I could do anything about it, I was determined to do something about it. And I paid a price for it in the end. One of the important aspects of your position in Victoria Police is that you weren't alone in your management role. You're the person you respond, you were reporting to was the Commissioner of Victoria Police, Simon Overland. What was his view on some of these issues as they were coming out? Was he willing to challenge them and to investigate them and to thoroughly ensure that processes which had been where, where corners had been cut? What was his support to you like? I think for Simon, this was very difficult. Uh, he had actually been um, the leader of this area for a, a, a number of years before I joined the organisation. And um, so for him, it was very difficult uh, for me to be saying, well, well, the way this has been done, in my opinion, is wrong, it's unlawful, etc., etc., because obviously you would find that very difficult. And because I decided to covertly, once I'd made my views clear, nobody was in any doubt what I thought about this, but I thought the evidence for this to exonerate or implicate people is going to go, is going to go missing. And um, so I decided to approach another agency uh, who had an accountability for oversight of Victoria Police and to, to actually give them my concerns and have them start to investigate this. So that's what I did. So there weren't a lot of discussions um, beyond me giving people the highlights of what was actually going on. And I was finding out more and more stuff, Oliver. It wasn't just that. So, you know, there was a, it, was it was a really difficult time. And I remember we talked about family earlier, and I, I talked to my wife about some of this stuff, and she was really worried and said, they're not going to let this go. This is going to be dangerous for you and for me, and um, we ought to be thinking about our future here. And frankly, I didn't take it on board. You know, to this day, I regret not listening more carefully to, to what she was trying to tell me because had I taken her advice, I might have got out earlier. But, um, you know, she did read that atmosphere very accurately long before I did. But she did give me her support. And that was good because the death threat started to happen not soon after that, where, you know, the, the force was receiving uh, credible death threats 
a contract on my life was being flogged around Queensland, your old manor. And um, so I was armed 24-7. We had an armed team. They took over the unit above us and 24-7. And it was a very, very uncomfortable and difficult time for us. Um, we talk about the support of family through difficult situations and being there through thick and thin and being able to be a sounding board for you. Mm. When you're starting to receive death threats and your wife can see a significant change in the security arrangements for you and your family more broadly, how how do you support your family through that change? And do you feel somewhat responsible for the, for the situation that you've placed them in? How are you managing all these emotions that must be running through your head? Well, uh, you, you're absolutely, your latter point is is hits me right between the eyes. I felt and feel so bad that my decisions had exposed my family, my wife, to this level of concern and fear and insecurity, and it's something that's never really left us. So I feel really guilty and bad about that. I wasn't responsible for the people that were making the threats or the difficulties I was experiencing within the organisation, but I was incredibly worried. Running alongside, and, and also I, f I feel guilty right now. And I also feel guilty that, you know, that even after all these years, it, it's not really been properly addressed by anyone in Victoria. No one's ever said, I don't, they don't need to apologise to me, but somebody needs to apologise to her for what they put her through. She was followed. It was made obvious to her, you know, in various coffee bars and what have you, that she was being followed. Her phone, we know her phone was being tapped on all her friends. That's been a by, matter of by, official record. By by who, Ken? By who? By the then Office of Police Integrity. Because one thing I jumped over, one of the fightbacks from within the organisation was that a, a series of false complaints were made about me. Uh, a large story appeared in the press after the, a few days after Williams was murdered. Um, and 99% and of it was public domain. But the journalist, very effective journalist, good at putting two together, put other facts in there that only the investigative team, of which there was about 10 of us that were in the know on every bit of the knowledge, would have known. So that was then taken as a signal by the senior team at Victoria Police to make a complaint about me that I'd leaked stuff to the press, which was just ridiculous. But the consequence of that was that the organisation um, that they made the complaint to immediately started following me around, uh, surveilling me 24-7, illegally bugged our telephones, uh, and also followed my wife and bugged her telephone, and also did it in a, in a very clunky way, in a way that was meant to intimidate. You know, there was a they knew full well I hadn't done anything. It was meant to, you need to bugger off, you know, get get the hell out of here. So I jumped over that bit earlier on, and that was that was one of their reactions to me pushing and pushing and, and determined to get some daylight and scrutiny on this um, on this corruption. Now, the agency I was working with, which wasn't the Office of Police Integrity, would tell, told me, your home's been illegally bugged, you're being surveilled Ill illegally, you need to be very, very careful. We'll do what we can to protect you. Uh, but but um, it, that didn't make make us feel much more comfortable, frankly. But I did realise at that point, I'm not going to survive here. I have to get out. I have to do what I can, but I have to get out. 
But, but Ken, I suppose what I'm struggling with here at the moment and what worries me the most is the fact that you're the Deputy Commissioner of Victoria Police, one of the most recognisable police forces in Australia out of all the states in terms of the work and the issues which go on in Melbourne. And you have an organisation which is telling you, the Deputy Commissioner of Police, that they can't guarantee your safety in your position. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and, that, and look, with the benefit of hindsight, and, and at the time I really knew that because of what I, my investigative activity and my uh, insistence on the law comes first and doing the right thing and my and refusal to, to back off, you know, I was, I was at risk. There's no question about it. And it wouldn't be, it's not too much to, because the organisation that did unlawfully bug us and follow us was abolished not long afterwards. And the, one of the reasons why they, they, they did what they did, Oliver, is because they'd been involved in operations, joint operations with Victoria Police on a, on a number of issues. Instead of regulating the organisation, which was their job, they'd actually unwisely, and you'll see this in my statement, become um, joint operators with us so that when things went wrong, we sank or swam together. They weren't in, in, a, in a position to do their job on behalf of the public and say, this is wrong. What they did with Nicola Gobble, they knew about it, was wrong. So they, they, were, they were completely hamstrung by their... Um, they, they drifted degree by degree from a regulatory role to a cooperating role. So I'm then threatening these people as well because they're thinking there's going to be a royal commission at some point because of him and we're going to be criticised or worse. So they didn't have any hesitation to get the warrants um, to bug our phones and to follow us and what have you. And the other organisation I told you about, the Ombudsman, you know, did their best to protect us. But the, the other, to say, once they've abolished them and they sealed up their warrant processes, it, it we're never going to find out exactly what it is was said about me and by who um, to allow them to this, this sort of pushback operation, um, which, which was successful ultimately because it drove us from Australia. Did you, <clears throat> did you have through that period, and I, I've read your Royal Commission statement and I found it quite emotional. And I found it emotional because I was just thinking about your wife the entire time, if I'm honest with you, because as, mm. as cops, we're, 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 we're very resilient individuals and I think we can put up with an awful lot. And we're very, you know, but, I, you know, I read it just, and there was one particular story in that statement that you recalled where you're walking through a park with your dog, with your oh, wife. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll finish that one, Oliver, then. We, we had a habit of walking around um, the local, there's a, there's a botanical gardens in the middle of Melbourne, they call it the town, and it's, it's a few miles the circumference and rightly lit footpath. So we used to go out walking at night. And one night we're out walking and um, my wife suddenly sort of, sort of screamed out and pointed, she got a red dot. Red dot landed on her, then on me, then on our dog. Now about, Ooh, half a mile or more away across a very dark parkland, you could see where this 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 light had come from. And it was it was I mean no doubt it was it was a highly focused light of a of a rifle. And this was a warning to us. You know, we we could easily get shot. Um and that was it for me, you know, once that happened. But it was a terrifying moment. But my initial reaction was, oh it's some kids with, you know, one of those laser pens and what have you. But I can tell you, Oliver, when I looked across the park, I could see it had come from such a long distance. And it was such a tightly focused. I'd been involved in um, procurement of such things in my career at various times. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
<clears throat> and one of the one of the things that manufacturers push is the concentration of light. Um, and the stuff you buy that's waved around by idiots isn't the same thing that you get in a very expensive, high-powered rifle sight. So yes, that was a, a terrifying moment indeed. Could, could I ask you a difficult question, if I may? I, I've asked you a couple, and I appreciate that. But whilst you've got people making threats to you and you've got organisations which are telling you to be careful and that they can't guarantee your safety... A protection team was appointed to you. Uh, you were then permanently armed, uh, which I suppose for our listeners, police officers in Australia are armed generally at operational level regardless. But for executive yeah. officers, it's very rare to see them out with firearms unless it's obviously a, a certain type of event. I think it's it's becoming more and more frequent these days. But you were armed. Were you starting to worry about the people you had around them and who you could trust? What I was worried about, Oliver, was being... Um this false complaint had been made. Um, I was worried about being in, in the common parlance fitted up. And I was worried about being fitted up, taken before court and possibly imprisoned like Williams. And, you know, something would happen to me in the prison system there. I was quite worried about that. I was worried about the impact on my wife. Um, but I realized, you know, that the scales fell from my eyes. So what am I doing? What am I doing here? This is something I'm not going to be able to deal with in the way that I thought I could. I haven't got the support that I needed. What I have got is an agency of the state after me, um, one of one that's broken the law already, one that's connived at this uh, corrupt barrister nonsense, and knowingly so. I need to get away from him. We just needed to get out. Flying in from the UK for one day in the hot seat. It's uh, been very painful for me and my family all these years. Sir Ken Jones didn't hold back about the mess created by police who recruited Nicola Gobbo. It began as highly irregular, unethical and deteriorated over a period of years to something that was illegal and chaotic. I want to be very clear about Victoria Police's absolute acknowledgement that the management of Nicola Gobbo as a human source and the manner in which the information she provided was used was a profound failure by our organisation. That must not and will not ever occur again. As Victoria Police had previously stated, it was an indefensible interference in the lawyer-client relationship and that is a fundamental requirement for the proper functioning of our criminal justice system. Victoria Police has a proud history of keeping the community safe. That history is built on the foundations of trust and respect. This was a breach of that trust by Victoria Police. I wanted to cover off on the fact that you have had an incredible career in the UK in policing, up to the rank of Chief Constable, you were head of ACPO here, you have an incredible network of professionals around you. Were you able to reach back home to say, I'm in a proper difficult situation here, threats have been made against my life? Is there, you know, you've been vetted to the highest level, you were briefing security services, the Prime Minister, the Home Office here in the UK on significant issues. You're in Australia, you're very, very vulnerable and your family. Were you able to reach out for support from home? I... Beyond family and friends, um, no, Oliver. One of the prob one of the downsides, I think, of policing in our country, in the UK, is that when you finish, you're finished. Um, so, 
It's, I've worked with the military in the UK and Australia. It's not the same for them. I've worked with some forces in Australia, and certainly the uh, Victoria Police is the same. It's not the same for them. But you tend to be very much, you're out, you're out. So, yeah, I felt the need for that kind of thing at times, uh, but, but it wasn't there for me. What was there for me, of course, was in Victoria, when this sort of thing happens, everyone, all of a sudden, you acquire some kind of uh, pain or disease. Uh, nobody wants to talk to you ever again. Your friends fall away. Your phone calls are answered. But a couple of people uh, were outstanding. Uh, a guy called Chris Gorn and uh, another, another guy called Greg Davis. And there were a couple of cops who, despite the threat, despite this kind of um, a terrible atmosphere that was created at the time, uh, were very supportive to us. So I, I'd lent on them, I'm afraid, very heavily for support. And they continued to offer it, even though at a, at a great expense to themselves. But the vast majority of people who I thought would have supported us for doing the right thing just disappeared. I understand it up to a point, because if you get close to somebody under that kind of scrutiny, you're investigated yourself. You know, it's brutal. It really is. There's no other word for it. And it's it's a it's a lifelong taint, you know, for them. So I understand it up to a point, but it's it's a bit like, well, if we don't all stand together, you know, we're, we're nothing, really. And um, people knew it was nonsense what, what was being said. I mean, the, even to the point where the guy who wrote the story that was complained about actually uh, went on oath and swore that I had nothing to do with it in any way, shape, or form, and he'd only ever met me twice or three times, it, it's still, they still wouldn't, didn't give people the comfort to come forward and say, we've had enough of this. I just hope that since, on reflection, of people have realised how differently that all could have turned out. It just needed a few more, was it Edmund Burke said, you know, for evil to try and good people just have to do nothing. You know, and that's exactly what does happen in these, in these sort of toxic environments. What are your reflections on your senior command colleagues consenting to your sacking by the chief, Simon Overland, um, and especially on your reflections on loyalty to the chief getting in the way of doing the right thing? I, I just think that they have to look. I can sleep well in my bed, uh, but I think that that, you know, that seven, eight, nine people have to ask themselves, you know, why and how could they have supported that, knowing that this, this was nonsense knowing that i was only trying i was doing my job to the best of my ability and um you know when i in my hour of need they weren't there for me and it also that also runs for people certain senior people in government who were when they were interviewed about oh i was so shocked it shouldn't have happened well they didn't say anything on the day it just needed a few people say just hold on a minute just can we just calm down what it what it what's the problem here what what does sacking this person and humiliating him have anything to do with, you know, getting getting these issues resolved? So it's just sad, but it does go back to that loyalty question, does it not? And they felt they were doing the right thing by standing standing together, but uh, they they weren't doing the right thing. And the subsequent inquiries have proved that to be the point. Have proved that to be the case. It's a it's a good point to lead into in terms of the Royal Commission into um, Police Human Source Management. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the Royal Commission, um, the, plot, the part that you played in it, and how do you think it's going to help in stopping future incidents like the one that you're exposed to and the one you discovered? Yeah, I mean, the consequence of the reports that 
flowed after I left Australia over the next few years were that ultimately government felt these issues are of such importance we have to have a Royal Commission into them. And uh, our UK listeners probably won't realise that a Royal Commission is not an unusual event in Australia. And it's, it's, it's more akin to a pub. We'd recognise it as a public inquiry. So it did ultimately lead to the government thinking, well, we have to have some kind of public scrutiny and they called the Royal Commission. So I was pleased when I heard that this had happened because a lot of the issues have never been properly resolved, not not from a personal or family perspective, but just because it, it's something that doesn't need to be settled in terms of, you know, Victoria going forward, you've got a number of unsolved homicides. You've got these um, terrible issues surrounding what, what the undermining and the corruption of the criminal justice process that haven't been aired. So I was quite pleased when it was set up. And um, also, I was uh, when I was asked to provide evidence, happy to give a statement, and I went, travelled to Australia and gave evidence in person. I thought it was a, a good airing of the issues. There were parts of it which weren't germane to the terms of reference, which were not properly looked at. For example, stuff around the Office of Police Integrities, illegal activities. Uh, knowledge of um, the Gobbo matters. There were other things that they could have gone deeper into, but also that the that the commissioner she ultimately recommended that quite unusually they usually determine an, a matter. So they'll say this has happened and X is responsible or X wasn't responsible, and these are my recommendations. And that's that's kind of it's a line in the sand, and people can move on. It was well, I'm concerned. She, her view was, I'm concerned that uh, serious criminal offences may have occurred. My view is a Royal Commission recommendation or determination isn't the best way to resolve it. My view is an independent investigation now needs, prosecution now needs to be appointed by government to take those matters forward, which is indeed what's happened. And in fact, there is in fact um, an investigation undergoing, uh, going on in Austria, in Victoria as we speak. The Office of Special Investigations, I've been speaking with them. Um, so we'll have to wait and see whether they're able to resolve this once and for all. But so that's it's kind of still ongoing, Oliver. That's that's the um, that's the bottom line on it. Returning to Australia to take part in the Royal Commission, um, like stepping back into the lion's den, that must have been quite a nervous trip for you. Um, what was it like landing back on Australian soil and there was a little bit of publicity, or quite a large amount of publicity. It's been a significant inquiry, but as you quite rightly say, it's not uncommon for royal commissions to occur in Australia. But um, what were the emotions that you were going through returning to a country that had really treated you quite badly? Well, uh, more broadly, I, I, the Australian people, I thought, they either were unconcerned, didn't know about it, and, and quite a few supported me. So I was pleased to go back. I saw lots of friends and acquaintances. I had nothing but support, and I've always felt and still feel, you know, that I didn't, they didn't turn their back on me in, in, a, in the broadest sense, and I didn't turn my back on them. And one of our great regrets is that, you know, we weren't able to live in Australia as we planned. And uh, I still, frankly, I love the country. I'd go back tomorrow if I could. So I was pleased to go back. I didn't feel in any way under any sorts of um, threat. Um, I was pleased to give my evidence. I thought it was the commission was well conducted. But it was kind of a cathartic thing for me because we left there in such distress um, and that to able to, to go back, as it were, and, and 
to, to see some of the people that I, I felt really close to. It was it was quite cathartic. So I, I did enjoy it, to be honest. But um, I, obviously, we await the consequences and the outcome of the uh, investigation that's currently ongoing. What were the outcomes of the Royal Commission? And how do you ever stop this from happening again to the next Deputy Commission that may come across incidences of corruption and, and issues which they can't sort out because of fear of reprisals? I think, Oliver, that lots of in developed democracies around the world with, with significant police forces, and if, if they're wise, they'll take note of these things. They'll see what's happened in places like Victoria, the things that happened to me, and also the things that happened in other countries, let's face it. And, and it's, our, it's, it's a police leader's responsibility to be aware and alive to those things and to take note of them. I can't imagine anybody ever um, getting so undermining and corrupting the criminal justice system in the way it was in Victoria in that era. And it's partly, and I think more, more or less wholly, because of what happened, because of the Royal Commission, because of the reports that came out in the few years before. So I think it will have re-established the proper boundaries between prosecutors, between defence, between investigators, uh, and also the proper handling of registered informants. So I think a lot of learning must have emerged from that, because God help anyone who ever tries to do that again, and especially in such an industrial way, as I say. So I think some good has come from it anyway. Whether we'll get any further in terms of highlighting, well, this has happened and he or she was responsible for it, we'll have to wait and see the uh, outcome of the special investigation. Or indeed, some people are exonerated and, and, and certain theories are disproved or proved. We'll have to see. So... I know that they're very actively investigating in these, these matters, but I do think much of the learning has already been absorbed. And you've got to remember as well that quite a few of the high court judgments, particularly the one I mentioned that came out, I think when, I think it was Frank Orman uh, was released from prison. He was convicted of, wrongly convicted of murder. That is such a scathing judgment. I think that will be um, influential in policing circles you know, for the foreseeable future. You've, outside of policing, since flying back to the UK, coming home, um, outside of your policing life when you've left Victoria Police in 2011, uh, you've taken on some fantastic roles. You've been an independent policing, cyber security and counter-terrorism consultant to ITN, and you've also been the defence and security advisor at the British Embassy in Washington from 2013 to 2014. And now, since 14 to current, you're obviously a global consultant on all things policing, leadership uh, and counterterrorism. Tell us about your roles outside of policing. Um, they quite incredible, fascinating insights. And again, more travel back into the US this time. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, never say never. And I wasn't when I came away from Australia, I thought this isn't going to define me or my life. I haven't done anything wrong. I just tried to do the right thing. Um, and I moved forward with that in mind uh, and immediately started applying for other roles, um, realizing I might be better off going out on my own or getting involved with consorting with other um, retired senior officers, which I have done. Um, but also I managed to land that job in America uh, through the foreign office, you know, and, and I've gone, I like to think, you know, from strength to strength, I've got a better balance of life and business. Business isn't so active. Now I have to tell you Oliver, because your currency isn't the same and quite rightly there are people who've um, left the service far 
in, in the last few years, not 10 years ago like I have. But nevertheless, you know, I'm having, I, my life is quite satisfying to me. Um, I do see these last 10 years as really positive and useful in terms of, of my self-perception, as it were, and my family perception, because I do think it's important that we don't let these things um, come to define us. This is why I've not been in for book writing and other things. I've kept out of it the debates on it unless I've felt I needed to get involved as I did with the Royal Commission and the current investigation and just got on with our lives because uh, you can't turn the clock back. You know, if I could, maybe I wouldn't have gone to Australia. Maybe I should have listened to my wife when she began to have serious misgivings, but it is what it is. What are your thoughts on the challenges facing British policing now and what tips would you give for future officers and future police leaders? I think the larger challenge, the biggest challenge is that we are moving, the service is moving further and further away from a, an authentic, meaningful relationship with the people who pay its wages, particularly at the local level. Uh, local policing has become very unfashionable. Um, it's regarded and paid lip service to in some forces, but I have to say in most forces, it's over. When you look at the time and investment that went into developing the local police model we had in this country, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic, really, the waste I know also, I would say to current chief officers and, and people who want to be chief officers, to look very carefully at the overall policing philosophy and not lose sight of the fact that good delivery of tactical policing at the neighbourhood level is the bedrock on which all policing is founded. And I, I also say this, I used to say this, the government, it's not your police force. The police services of this country sprang from communities. They were funded, trained, and operated locally, and um, and they're all too often regarded as some kind of national resource. They're not. And I do think it's sad that local people have kind of lost that attachment to their police force. One of the good things about my work in America, the Fulbright scholarship I mentioned, was this, the power of localism, even in counties like California, cities like Los Angeles, where what we'd regard as small, inefficient police departments are nothing of the sort. They might be small, but they're not inefficient. Where the local police chief, you know, in some of the smaller part, in some of the neighbourhoods in uh, Los Angeles, are locally appointed, locally accountable, and the strength and health of their policing flows from that. Yes, there are challenges in terms of strategic oversight, in terms of um, contesting organised crime, drugs, gangs. But if you move away from that fundamental bedrock, you're going to struggle. This country is beginning to struggle now, beginning to wake up to the uh, incredibly poor performance that most forces have in terms of catching criminals, uh, preventing violence and preventing crime more generally. All you'll hear from politicians as well, crime's been, is, is at a record low. No one, uh, we're not receiving the same reports. Well, I can talk to people locally, I'll tell you they're, they're, commit, they're having crimes committed against them pretty constantly. They... If they ring up, they're waiting hours to make uh, to get through to someone. No one comes out to the house to have a house burger, and no one comes out to the house. I, I think that the public in the UK are a slumbering giant. They're beginning to wake up, and I think that chief officers need to take note of that and start to really address the shortcomings of policing at the local level. But it's always been my hobby horse, probably always will be, but uh, that's what I'd have to say, Oliver. 
Well, Sir Ken Jones, recipient of the Queen's Police Medal, it's been an absolutely fascinating nearly two hours of conversation and I thank you ever so much on behalf of myself and my colleagues on the podcast uh, for your public service, not only here locally in the UK but overseas. And I think importantly, I think it's important to publicly acknowledge the sacrifices and the pressures that your wife faced during the latter part of your policing career and acknowledge yes, that and she's thank an you for that an incredibly brave woman who deserves an awful lot of credit. Um, so thank you to her. And uh, we wish you all the very best in your future policing endeavours. I'm incredibly uh, honoured to know you and we'll continue to stay in touch so we can see what work we can do together but on a professional level. But um, it's been an incredibly insightful two hours. Thank you ever so much. Thanks, Oliver. You're too kind. And uh, good luck with the, with the cast. It's uh... There have been some good ones that I've listened to in the last few months, so uh, I look forward to listening to this one. <laughs> thank you again. I want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank Sir Ken's wife, Kay, who throughout Ken's career supported him and stood by him as he took on the many challenges that presented him as a senior police officer. We have often talked about the unsung heroes behind the successful men and women of law enforcement, the husbands, the wives, the children, the families and close friends. I don't believe there to be a greater example of this than the stories that we have heard on today's exclusive episode. I can't begin to imagine the fear and torment Sir Ken's wife Kay must have experienced during this period of their lives in Australia. From being surveilled and having her phone bugged, to watching on as her husband had to deal with a dreadfully challenging set of events events which even threatened his life. For this, I want to say thank you to her and their children for the support they provided Ken during this incredibly difficult period in their lives. Thank you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.